0: Gresham College presents The Concert of the Future by Piers Helliwell, Gresham Professor of Music.
1: Now, in the concert of the present, which was the talk uh, that I gave last in the series back in November, Tim Yoss and I were contemplating the, the pressures which I think have by stealth greatly um, changed the concert fair on offer to us in classical music in the UK in recent years. Today we're going to peer into the future of that concert world. But before that, I want to explore some of these pressures in more detail because today's today's guest has certainly thought and written and broadcast a great deal about these issues and their bearing on how we present live music. I suggested last time that our political class, circumscribed itself by the ballot box, can no longer recognize any values, it seems, except those demonstrable by the artistic equivalent of electoral popularity. Truth and uh, fiction always seem to intertwine where this kind of state philistinism is concerned. And only last week, our new education secretary was reported to have questioned the validity of studying classics. Uh, I think his point was that students should have a tangible relationship with the workplace. So I suppose it follows that his attitude... Uh, applies equally to all humanity's subjects, that no learning is intrinsically worthwhile. Um, I certainly don't hold with that, and it fills me with great uh, disquiet to see this kind of uh, trend advancing. Nothing seems to be intrinsically worthwhile as a study anymore. For that leadership role of promoting cultural values seems to be held as a horrendous um, cultural imperialism, something tantamount to daubing the country with one's own image, Like some dictator, it seems the only safe cultural value is football. So even our senior politicians happily uh, learn quotes and quips to get themselves coverage in their local papers. Uh, There are no votes in quoting Proust, as it were. Sir John Drummond said uh, in his seismic 1998 Royal Philharmonic Society lecture that of our politicians, one never has the feeling that they are glad that the arts exist or that they do anything for, uh, to use their phrase, the quality of life or the country and its citizens. Uh, today's guest has also written in his book, uh, Art Matters, from 1999, on the same subject, I'm worried about the Prime Minister because he is signalling that Oasis is as important to Britain as opera, that Chach... That's O-P-E-R-A, by the way. Um, that ch- LAUGHTER ch- uh, Chat shows are as important as live theatre and that all sorts of other key ingredients of the arts matter not at all. That sense of abrogated cultural values has been replaced by what seems to me a grotesque by-election in terms of the perceived importance of art forms. In terms of theatre and drama, the winner is bound to be something recognised off the television. In music, something whose juicy bits have been widely packaged by um, EMI or classic FM. Art forms that eschew that packaging and uh, product management are relegated to those nine other parties also standing that the newsreaders are obliged to mention. Well, the rocky road that reaches across this balmy landscape to the work of art is, for some skilled practitioners, just too long and too winding. Who can blame them? The music world is, in classical terms, as in pop, absolutely full of young people offering Widely the same skills. And their dedication for feeble economic rewards strikes me as awesome. It's no wonder that some of them dream up faster ways of drawing attention to their skills, especially in the age of big money from the media. So, our concert world is now full of artistic shortcuts or offcuts from the real thing, uh, designed for those with no inclination to concentrate for more than a few minutes. These were a few years ago, I think, just striking oddities, and they probably wouldn't have been part of my talk today. But in a short time, I think what has happened is that these have come to be taken as cultural paradigms so that none of us in the mainstream arts can ignore their implications. Well, a recent recent article in what I think is our nation's most widely read periodical, the Radio Times, paraded the values of the aforementioned culture that assesses broadly speaking, by counting bums upon seats. Something we never do at Gresham, by the way. Um, The article uh, in the Radio Times was gasping at the success of these pseudo-classical outfits, uh, bringing showbiz razzmatazz to artistic materials. And so uh, girly string quartets and wealthy stadium tenors were being dangled in front of mainstream uh, practitioners in the article, and these leading practitioners were being invited to jump the barrier and uh, join the colorful dash for cash. Happily, they all refused and Sir Simon Rattle used unambiguous language in the interview to dismiss uh, crossover products as he called them as a distraction and he said what 's important is to do something well. You might think that was a needless reiteration, but it hardly is so when it is seriously advanced that this is the new classical music. The gist of this article that I read was that the rest of us are being, the rest of us in the arts, I mean, are being left sprawling by the record sales of the Babarazzi and the uh, <laughs> the overfed tenors. It assumed, therefore, that we're all running one race. The serious musos, like myself, are lolloping along at the back, way behind, um, while scantily clad nubile soloists streak across the finishing line of this particular race clad in strings of dollar bills with tenors riding upon their shoulders singing, I don't know, the theme from Match of the Day um, in full voice. Now this would pose a dilemma for people in serious arts if we were doing the same thing, but we are not. So I think there's a big confusion here. Because commercial pressures dog everything that we do in the day-to-day planning of, for example, classical music, and we always have the begging bowl out, then it's wrongly assumed that our goal is that same commercial success as those who, well, sell out. Uh, It is not the same. Funding for us is a means rather than an end. While composers and artists do obviously want the maximum exposure for what we do, what we do is not geared to maximizing that exposure. That is the difference, and how can it be so hard to understand To me, nothing underlines this chasm of intention than (coughs) the article's quoted words of a record executive. The only judgment you can really make is whether people want it. Well, there we have it, the artistic credo of our time, whether people want it. We should churn out what people will buy. But while that is undoubtedly good advice, if you're running uh, Universal Classics or whatever, it is not the only judgment you can make if you're trying to write an orchestral piece for the LSO, or make a piece of stonework that will stand in a public place for 150 years, then the only judgment you can make, as far as I can see, should be that of Simon Rattle, that doing something something well is never a bad idea. It takes longer, and the money is usually lousy, but as you're going to be identified by it forever, it is a good idea to use your inner compass because you're on a different journey from somebody um, in the commercial sector, making what people want. The compass pointing to what people want is, anyway, I think, a notoriously dicky instrument. Even if it should point the artist to commercial gain, artistic practitioners may find that uh, what seemed a good idea will hang around their neck for longer than they expected, and they might do well to think how they wish to be remembered. This gives me the flimsiest of excuses to retell the story about Professor Morris Bower sunbathing nude on the river at Parson's Pleasure uh, during an Oxford summer. Um, I warned you, it was a flimsy excuse. But when a punt full of ladies came by and his colleagues hurried to cover their nether regions uh, as they sunbathed uh, nude, Bowerer covered his face with his hat and said, "Uh, I don't know what you're known by in Oxford, but I'm known by my face. So (laughs) you may feel the moral of this story is that it's hard to be known by your face, so to speak, if you're going to be commercially rewarded in today's cultural climate. You may not feel there's any connection at all, but still. Um, My own critique of the various babes and tenors uh, is merely to reiterate the distinction between artifact and commercial product, which has been one of the chorus lines of my talks. I prefer to distinguish than to condemn because, I mean, I have no right to object to the packaging of highlights from music so long as it is recognized as such and as something different. In any case, any musicologist will tell us that the highlights industry is the second oldest profession in the world, which is interesting, it's not unrelated to the oldest. But (laughs) I object only to the idea that marketed chunks become the thing itself. That they be taken for the art of which they are an all-singing, all-dancing, edited highlight. They are a wholly different animal, just as anything called nuggets is not necessarily the same as chicken. And um, I've even heard it alleged um, <coughs> that contains a minimum 39% mechanically recovered chicken product, um, which is a, a meat content considerably higher than some versions of classical works. So. These are products, bite-size elements honed toward maximum consumption and commercial gain. And art, as I said, differs in giving no priority to rapid dissemination, though some practitioners are masters at self-advertisement. That's something different. Whether the maximum audience will like your work on the first or only encounter is not the issue. If it is the issue, you're making a product, and we're discussing an industry, (coughs) the music business it is called, and that is something whose culture is the result of popular endorsement. I think that is a confusingly different world, one that rewards the swiftest peristalsis through the national digestive system, though we we know where digestive systems tend to lead. But (laughs) it's a case of elementary, my dear Watson. Um, But my elementary analogy is not meant to suggest that art should be indigestible, but that there should be something to digest. A national junk diet is bad news for quiet and intricate forms of artistic expression. The assumption that these are driven by the engulfing ambitions of the music business leads to a pessimistic, received orthodoxy about today's topic, the future of classical concert going. The article I mentioned took a swipe in passing uh, as follows. The trouble is, there's only one Simon Rattle. And at a time of dwindling interest in classical music, it said, we should remember this dwindling interest when The same magazine, no doubt, has another of those time-honoured five classical Berlin Philharmonic CDs for £10 on the back cover. They never seem to be far away, and so presumably they make money for someone. Or when, for example, it runs a huge spread about the next BBC Young Musician competition, of which television coverage seems annually to grow. The more that serious art fills a quiet place in lives of serious numbers of quiet people, I think the less our opinion formers seem to be aware of it. These easy obituaries are all too contagious and they demonstrate that for opinion formers and for funders the box office uh, machine is the only show in town and that is very frightening. The more conscious of business balance sheets we become of course the worse that the classical arts look on paper. This is because popularity ratings measure only the size of audience not the depth of their artistic experience. They measure one way but never the other, and that is a problem. Today's guest has written on this, uh, about this assault on the arts in the following way. They already stand naked and without defence in a world where what cannot be measured is not valued, what cannot be predicted will not be risked, what cannot be controlled will not be permitted, and where what cannot deliver a forecast outcome is not undertaken, where what does not belong to all will be allowed to none. That is the agony. And that last, I think, is the greatest agony, the survival by focus group, or not at all. The breathtaking shallowness of this um, form of of, uh, weighing and measuring should be exposed. And we can start out by pointing that a full concert is a concept relative to its venue. Audiences for opera and concert music are usually respectable, if not huge. And the same were thought to be large audiences, at least until the advent of stadium rock and roll in the 1960s. Only now that we're used to size in everything, and for example mega has become a term of quality as well as one of of girth, um, can a gathering of 150 people enjoying 150 intense private experiences be seen as symptomatic of dwindling interest. It's like turning a huge success into a failure, simply according to one incredibly inflexible um, form of uh, measurement. As I said, this distortion is possible because experience cannot be quantified, while attendance can. Recently, I was lucky enough to be at uh, Berg's Wozzeck uh, at uh, the Royal Opera House, Covent Garden. A shatteringly dark and morbid vision, which I think is as avant-garde as anything from the 20th century, at least in that production, and yet the house was packed. Now, tickets had, I think, been halved as a promotional thing, but they certainly were by no means free, and they were snatched up. If the entire production and audience had been transferred to the Birmingham NEC, or the football stadium, then undoubtedly the whole caboodle would have been revealed as less popular than a Madonna concert, for example. But in our world of choices, porcini mushrooms are in less demand than pot noodles, and they're all the more important for that. So Votsek is
0: a, a mushroom.
1: Art has not become and is not about to become easier, which is why the only true access to it is education, whether we say it once or three times. In other words, we need to learn to listen if we're not to subside into cultural obesity on a, a junk diet. Today's guest... Uh, happily unencumbered by my dietary metaphors, warns that the audience for the historical canon will wither because less has been taught and therefore less is understood. This was consummately demonstrated by the Nessun-Dorma phenomenon, which turned out to be a mania not for opera but for Nessun-Dorma. Liking a tune is nowhere as near demanding or time-consuming as liking an opera, which uh, is why opera composers since 1600 have sought to salvage at least a hit song that might reach our lips on the streets. I had an interesting kind of personal demonstration of this when BBC broadcast uh, Covent Garden's um, Magic Flute at the weekend. Uh, My daughter seemed to take an interest in it, and so we threw in a video and recorded some of it. And after that, she went back to it again and again. But although I told her about all the bits that we saw and what was going on, and she commented on them all. What she really wanted to hear over and over again was the Queen of the Night's aria. And (coughs) not only that, but then proceeded to sing it herself after a fashion. And it just struck me that, you know, arias are not the same as opera. There is no obvious trickle-down effect. And she's only five and a half, so maybe that was unsurprising. Um, Nessun Dorma, or indeed the Queen of the Night's aria, pass the recording executive's test of whether people want it in a way that opera as a whole never will because it's essentially demanding if only in terms of of time span. I wanted to make the same point about classical music uh, in terms of the the work of Henrik Goretzky uh, and to say that um, widespread popularity of his third symphony has not, for example, spread into an exploration of his very radical other music Uh, But I couldn't, because I couldn't find a recording of the piece I wanted to play you anywhere in London today. Um, All I could find anywhere were endless different recordings of his third symphony, which, again, I think proves the point. Before I'm challenged, I must say that I don't mean that uh, in lauding arts education you will only enjoy Radio 3 if you go to evening classes, for example. What I mean is that you will only enjoy Radio 3 after enjoying Radio 3, repeatedly, In other words, great art is just too smart to give up all its secrets in one blurt, and you have to give it the time to live with it. No one is excluded, therefore, except by their choice. But a culture of instant sound nibbling is an exclusion zone in itself. These contradictions matter, because if we care about access to real music played in full by real artists, we can no longer just sit and hope for the best. We need to know what is going on, or mechanically recovered music will be the only item on our menu, on the grounds that nobody wants anything else. It becomes a received wisdom. What we're allowed to see and hear is shifting, driven by all sorts of boardroom speak and arts funding reports about access. And as concert goes, we know little of this until the programme hits the mat. Last time we talked about examples from a festival that I know, which used to expend presumably considerable resources on Kyung Hwa Chung, the Leipzig Gewandhaus Orchestra and so on. This year had uh, Status Quo and Nana Muskuri, neither of which were presumably free, but um, these things are shifting, and we need to say that they're shifting before it's too late. My last talk also took a look at um, the flaky uh, thematic programming whose Triffid March has left uh, not just festivals, but many orchestral planners with stars in their eyes, um, I wondered whether themed programming is thought easier or maybe sexier for UK audiences, as if we've never quite got the hang of difficult and unsexy concerts which present overtures, concertos and symphonies um, without perhaps being about renewal or the millennium or something. So, I'm clear that music should be defended against packaging and reprocessing if we want a durable sensation rather than a fashionable stroking. It is right to ask, while it's not too late, where such idiocies are leading our concert life and what we can do about it if we're worried. I've stressed in different talks that art or music should be a fixed point that we approach through some preparation rather than the other way around such as uh, a watered down artifact that is offered to a public assumed no longer to be able to to, to cope with the original. To me that stability is needed for a very clear reason because art, however outrageous or trivial it might seem to be, or however impenetrable, is the expression of humanness, by which I mean more than humanity. I mean what it is to be human. And this is something that has not changed. And because this has not changed, we need the art not to change. As long as we continue to be children, spouses, parents, leaders, followers, who run the gamut of emotions in those roles, we will need from art the same as enriched us in the past. So my wish as a fairy godparent for the concert of the future would be that it be protected from superfluous relevance, branding, goal orientation, innovative, strategic objectives, uh, and so on, in favor of self-effacing presentation of music. Well, my guest may now tell us that, in fact, it's not as simple as that. Um, It's a huge pleasure to welcome John Tewson to Gresham, um, coming, as it were, from one of the newest leading institutions to one of its oldest institutions, as we're just over 400 years old at Gresham. Um, As I'm sure you know, uh, John Tuzer, as well as being (coughs) uh, managing director of the Barbican Arts Centre, is a former managing director of BBC World Service, a distinguished broadcaster on television and radio, and a journalist, still a journalist, as uh, he'll tell us. And more worryingly for me, he's also a distinguished interviewer, Uh, And uh, his radio series of interviews um, with a lot of my heroes, um, Stoppard, Elliot Carter, Ligeti, Birtwistle, Anthony Caro, um, all kinds of things, these interviews to me are in themselves research documents. Certainly, I've actually copied them and circulated them to students. Um, And so, he has many strings (coughs) to his bow, and uh, I'm delighted that uh, during my Gresham time, I've managed to get him here, so... John, very well. (laughs) We have to ascend to a Parnassus that I personally have never reached in Gresham here. Um, Now, um, it was a few years ago now that John's collection of essays, Art Matters, uh, came out, and I think it Acted as a focal point for the dissatisfaction that many of us felt uh, with the way that arts, art's activity was perhaps not receiving the kind of um, warm shoulder of support that, w- that we had expected it was going to receive in the late 90s. And so one of the things I want to do today is to ask <coughs> how the author feels now, not just as a practitioner but as an observer of other people and political practice since then. So one of the most striking features about this collection was uh, a short essay in which the, the writer said that he was worried about Tony for various reasons, some of which I mentioned to do with uh, giving a lead on what are core cultural values in the UK. So, John, perhaps I could begin by asking you four years on, um, how worried are you now about Tony?
2: I'm still pretty worried. Um, I read a piece in The Standard last week following on from Tessa Jowell's interesting remarks in Berlin saying, why is it that the Germans take their culture more seriously than the uh, English stroke British? And one of the reasons I suggested was that the amount of leadership that came from the British political classes in this respect was very, very lacking. And the example I I gave, and it's only one of many, was that um, the West German president, the federal president, would always fly up from Bonn to West Berlin for the first night of a new production or maybe even a revival of The Ring in in West Berlin. Now, while this was partly a political gesture, it was also principally a cultural gesture. And anything like that being done by any British Prime Minister that I can think of was and is unthinkable. And unless and until you get into that sort of frame of mind... Uh, then I think you'll find the political will for really significant arts funding rather lacking. And by contrast, um, it, I was forcibly struck by the fact that when the Beckhams appeared at Covent Garden for the ballet about a fortnight ago, and this caused a huge frisson, mainly among the dance critics who were frightfully excited by somebody who said there was gold dust everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but the point was this any politician or prime minister, if they said I'd like to go to the ballet, somebody would say, are you sure that's a good idea? I
0: mean, the
2: ballet and all that. Now the Beckhams went because they liked it. And they were there because uh, they liked it, I think there's something about it, and that is what they were going to do. And I hugely admire that as an example, I mean, I think actually it's it's an act of leadership, but the reason they did it was because they liked it. And I just want some politicians to go to the arts be seen at the arts because they like it. So, that element of leadership is still very lacking.
1: Well, I mean, in years of uh, kind of Labour opposition, as many of us were <clears throat> familiar with, uh, Mark Fisher's regular kind of supportive comments, I suppose, in favour of the arts. But um, in a sense, he feels more isolated now, I think, than he ever did, which is extraordinary. I mean, there, there are no friends in that way, and and it's it's very frightening.
2: On the other hand, I I think one should recognise, it'd be churlish not to, that the amount of funding the Arts Council has, has been quite significantly increased. There are many, many organisations, of course, which are still short, but I think the overall levels of funding have gone up uh, significantly, so in a way despite um, the government's overall lack of enthusiasm for the arts, I think what you said about Charles Clarke and his casting doubt on whether the humanities are worth anything at all as part of education. Um, The government has done done something, but my feeling, all it is, how much more they could do, and at a very, very cheap price, if there was a wholehearted commitment to the arts, not just for what they are, but also for what they do, and they do to individuals, and I think to what they do to whole groups of people.
1: The idea of intrinsic worth is what seems no longer to be defensible. Uh, There was a letter which I saved and have now lost from the Times Higher Education Supplement this week from somebody pointing out that students who are carrying um, thousands of pounds of debt are much less likely to consider going into a subject of academic (laughs) rather than vocational worth, like philosophy was the example she gave, because um, it, it is acting as a signal that um, intrinsic study is no longer worth funding and therefore you can expect to be in debt from which you cannot recover if you go for that. And that is all part of a, a message that you know anything you learn has to be as part of a kind of a job market I think.
2: But I, I think if I can say something slightly different that is that one of the great things about the arts is that they are capable of producing surprise and so that none of us can ever predict what the reaction of anybody in any audience is. And that is wonderful. Um, th- that is that it is completely unpredictable. And I'll just give you one recent example of how wonderful I think this is. Uh, the Royal Shakespeare Company has just started their new production uh, of an adaptation of Salman Rushdie's um, Midnight's Children. And that's on till the end of uh, February. Uh, and I think it's a... I mean, I think it's a so-so show, frankly, myself. Um, but I was comparing notes to somebody and she said, Ah, oh, yes, my grandson who is at the LSE, was so excited by it, he went back to his hall of residence, his next door neighbour happens to be a young Indian, and he turfed him out of bed and said, you've got to tell me about Indian independence, what life was like in Bombay at the time, I've just seen this play, this is the most exciting thing I've ever seen. So the lad is 20, what does he know about Indian independence in 1947? For the first time, he Heard about it. He saw something about it, and he wanted to know a huge amount more. And I think the sheer unpredictability of what we do uh, in the arts is is absolutely wonderful. And that's only one, the latest example of how. Thank God, you can't predict what everybody or anybody in the audience is going to take away from a performance. Yes,
1: I mean, it. It always seems to me that there's a kind of purity. Perhaps this is sentimental, but there's a kind of purity about the encounter between say, uh, a very young child and an artistic material, whether it's just a drawing that they can do or, you know, banging a drum or something, and that from that moment on, um, it's a matter of how little they're interfered with by kind of institutional mechanisms. And going back to your, your example of Berlin, uh, I mean, why is it that it takes a British conductor and, you know, the leading British animateur of his, of his generation to make that happen? out of this country? I mean, is it that there is this kind of institutional interference in, that prevents these sort of things happening here? Because, as you would say, the talent was British.
2: Uh, yes, exactly. I don't think it's institutional in- interference. I think in that case it's very, very simple. This simply isn't the money. The London Symphony Orchestra's education programme, and it was <coughs> their educational animateur, Richard McNichol, who actually did the Berlin Project, or was a large part of it. He could have done it in London. LSO could have done it in London. They're simply not funded for it. Uh, and rattle, and no doubt Berlin, despite the fact that it is strapped for for cash, said this is a project we're going to do, this is a huge project, and it was funded. So again, when Tessa Giles said, why can't this sort of thing happen in in London? The answer is because the Arts Council and you don't don't fund it. Um, so I'm afraid it does come down to, to money. And w- just a, a little gloss on something you said uh, earlier, Pierce, which, which struck me. Um, <clears throat> I, I mean, I think too often we say, yes, yeah, the arts have the begging bowl out and so on and so forth We be subsidized. But being subsidized is incredibly important because it demands that you're different. Yeah. Doesn't it? It's the justification. It's not just justification, it's the reason for, for being different. Uh, and again, when you said that um, you give, pe- give people what they want, what the arts have to do and what subsidized arts have to do is that to give people things they don't know. What they want. I don't mean they as well. I don't know what I want from music. I don't know what I want in the theatre. But I'm pretty damn sure that I want something that is different, something that is original, something that is going to surprise me. I can't be the only person who feels this way, and I'm not. And that is the fallacy, the awful fallacy of the give people what they, what they want. On that basis, everything stands still for, for ever and a day. And that seems to me to be the overriding argument and justification for the arts, whether they're subsidized or not.
1: But, you see, this, like so many of these problems, starts right at the bottom with the education of the very young. This is something that I'm going to say a bit more about on Thursday lunchtime. Um, It concerns me greatly that there is a trend in our education to... And I think it is craven to judge material uh, in musical education according to whether the children can relate to it and whether it is relevant. Frankly, education is not about what you already know. It's about what you don't. And in other areas, for example, engineering or, uh, I don't know, dentistry or whatever, we learn not just about what things are but how they work. And it seems to me that there's some kind of tarnish that has, met, that has come up upon learning about how things work because it maybe it marks out the aptitude of some people as being you know, better at these areas than other people. And that is something... Which is anathema to all politicians. So part of the same thing is that there is a, a horror of difficulty, and this is where classical music is deemed to be getting nearer to the commercial product from which it is quite separate. I have no problem with the commercial product beyond envying their, you know, their high earnings. But I mean, they are something different, and and it, it is a confusion which is all more easy to make when we think of um, a classical artifact as being, you know well, when we judge it according to how quickly it can be consumed, as you say, it seems to me that there is an intrinsic interest in something that we don't understand, that that is what art assumes. It doesn't have to be, as I said, it doesn't have to be indigestible, but there has to be something to digest, and digestion is a process, I mean, whatever it takes. We don't just swallow something and it's gone. It takes ages to break down in our system, and I think that's how art is meant to work. But it, perhaps it's a kind of short-termism, I don't know. Um, Also in the book, you mentioned uh, what you said would be a deal that we would accept the managerial jargon that was then and is now being forced upon us if there was a recognition that the arts are different and they're not a business and so on in this country. We're surrounded by jargon, we use it increasingly, we catch ourselves trotting these things out, but have you seen any further recognition amongst powers that be that we're dealing with something that is intrinsically different?
2: Well, I, I think that what's also happening is that politicians particularly, realizing that the pure language of managerialism is a poor guide to themselves, even in the field where they are supposed to be expert, which is policy-making. And um, uh, after all, in the course of the last six months, the number of major government departments which have had to stand up and say, and of course um, Estelle Morris was only the most uh, flagrant example of this she said I promised you X years ago that this would be achieved and this was the the objective well I haven't done it now still Morris happened to have the uh, candor and the honesty to say I missed that target and I'm resigning but other ministers uh, stood up and said we promised you such and such a target usually over transport but not just over transport Uh, we haven't hit it and but that's only because we've delayed the time when we we will hit it and I thought, t- Re- reclassified as an aspiration. Re- reclassified, yes. We have rescheduled this train, and it'll arrive an hour late. Um, but the, you know, I, I think what they're slowly realising is that in trying to deliver policy, as they had put it, or no, deliver the outcomes of policy through these uh, ob- objectives, they have not helped the actual provision of services. Why? because most of these targets are mechanical, and unless you have these targets informed by values, then I don't think they will ever hit any of their targets. And the great thing about the arts, it seems to me, is they do put values, or they uh, assert and express the primacy and the importance of values, not just in the activity of the arts, but actually in most uh, activities. And it is this disjoin, in the world of politics, particularly, and I think in in business too, that if you try to be too mechanical, too quantifiable, um, then you will almost certainly miss the targets that you have defined because you haven't thought about the activity. Uh, It doesn't matter whether this is the or the efficient organisation of an accident of an emergency uh, or or anything else, and all I say is the politicians are being very, very slow in recognising that what's missing is something they can learn from the arts, which is that without the values, without the skills and so on and so forth, the things simply won't work.
1: This is what I mean about intrinsic. Well, I think it's something similar about the, the loss of intrinsic values. And I mean, art is sublimely useless, after all, although we know that it can do all kinds of things, from music therapy to helping business be more productive, but that isn't the point. Hmm. You know, it, it is not built as a tool, But that is a dilemma which you touch on in one of the essays where you say that um, it all hinges on um, whether the arts should be supported because of what they are or because of the impact that they have to use a good new labour word mm. the impact. in other words social engineering I suppose I mean we've seen a lot of this even in this parliament haven't we I mean there was a green paper in 2001 I think which urged us as, art, art, as uh, artistic practitioners to go out and Help um, the uh, the businesses to to be more productive through le- i 'm not quite sure how, but somebody had told them that uh, the, the artistic practice can be good news for business, and so suddenly they had found something that some use to which uh, sponges in the arts could be put and well you know I wondered whether there is anything that can be done to... I mean, in a sense, it's the same question as we've been looking at in, in a different kind of corner. But is there anything t- that can now be done to underline the, no- the notion of an intrinsic worth, or is it just too late? I mean, is it a kind of constant rear-guard
0: battle now? Oh, I it?
2: never know. I am very, very resistant uh, to thinking that anything is, is too late. Yeah, the arts okay. are fantastically useful, and it was demonstrated during the war. Think of workers' playtime. Most of us, I fear, are old enough to remember workers' workers playtime. What did workers' playtime do? But keep morale up. Uh, Music while you work. All, all, all these things. This was a very, very practical recognition that people listened to music and they felt cheerful and they had a laugh at half past twelve. <laughs> it was half past twelve, wasn't it? Uh, uh, workers' playtime. Yeah. Uh, then the chance were they would go back and they would make more, more munitions in in the afternoon. Um, this is not a very difficult proposition, and I think in one level, at one level or another, that still applies. It's just yes. we don't quite know how how to to apply it. Yes. Um, well, one way in which.
1: Um, one way in which the kind of uh, commercial world has interfered with with us I suppose is to try and um, get us to to market things. You make the point that uh, art and marketing are, are intrinsically hostile to one another because marketing is about, I think you say collectivism and art is about individual statements and somehow that has to be reconciled. But Do you think this is a good thing? I mean, I've said some rude things about thematic programming and so on in recent talks and everything, but do you think, I mean, you have experience of audience figures and uh, flowcharts and all that kind of thing. I mean, is this a helpful thing in terms of actually making people go to things that they would not go to otherwise? Thematic programming? Yes.
2: Almost always a mistake. Some of the worst... um, uh, some of the biggest losses we have sustained in recent oh. years of uh, when we had extremely clever uh, thematic festivals and we learned the hard way that if you put something into your programming because it fits into a theme but isn't itself terribly good that is an absolutely surefire way of losing money um, so you, you know you, you have to play these things in a rather uh, a rather subtle way. But uh, um, I mean, I think at one stage you said yes, at the millennium we'll have a great festival on the theme of time. Yes. Right, it's going to be, and we drew up all sorts of programmes and ideas. And the more we looked at the programmes, thought, oh, this is terrible. So fortunately, that was one we did not do. Uh, we, we we avoided that. But there there have been others. Um, and <clears throat> yes, you know, you sometimes want to not impose a shape, but <clears throat> encourage people by thinking that there is a different shape, that there is a concept behind it, but in the end, it's entirely the quality of the uh, programming, the quality of the performance, whatever it is in whatever art form, which will get people to go there. Almost every year, the director of the proms announces that the theme for the proms is such and such. I bet any money that the number of tickets that are sold, because the theme for the proms is whatever it may be, is not, I would have thought it was scarcely measurable. But if it helps him to program it, which it probably does, if it gives a certain structure and so on and so forth, that's fine, but that's not, in the end, why we go to that. You there They say, "Wonderful, I'm going to uh, another concert in the Prom series on Spanish music and its influence." And, and, yeah. Or I renewal,
1: maybe. Yeah. Really I mean, you know, something really kind of intangible. Yes. Like that, you know, yeah. you know, it was awful. I didn't like any of the pieces, but it was about renewal, so I went. <coughs> yes, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, right, I If people don't think like this, I don't understand why administrators think they need to do this. I don't know wh- where it's come from.
2: Well, you begin to feel that it's boring otherwise, don't you? You know, what are you doing? It's oh, God. Like it's another series of programmes. and uh, Symphony. Yes, 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 and even even if it's not that. I mean, think it, 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 it's uh, an, another way of flagging, of uh, beating the um, tired mind of administrators into having new ideas.
1: Well, God preserve us from those for a start. Um, yes, absolutely. Um, well, maybe we do need new ideas in the concert. I mean, I ended by saying that uh, I would like to see the live performance of music continuing as a self-effacing presentation of art. But in the book, you've made some very uh, startling proposals for how we might get people in or perhaps make people who come in feel more uh, engaged with what they see. Mm. Um, could you just outline for anybody who hasn't read that what your ideas were and whether you know, how they've developed since since then?
2: Uh, yes, fortunately, they have developed. What I suggested in, in, in the book was that there needed to be a much more Uh, enthusiastic uh, integration between what television technology could provide in the concert hall uh, and the actual concert hall experience Um, and that there was a great deal of material lying around which you could very happily uh, integrate into the routine concert hall experience provided you put up some say a couple of large screens inside the concert hall and also maybe some screens outside in the foyers and then if you thought of the whole experience in terms of what you would see if you were watching a television programme, that is the 20 minutes beforehand, would I would have the introductory material, the conversations with the performers, uh, and, and, and so on and so forth, you wouldn't just see that if you were watching the television. You could go into the concert uh, hall itself and see that up on the screens. There could also be news material as well, where the orchestra had been and so on and so forth. Uh, then during the performance itself... Uh, you'd have a rather restrained use of the television cameras, not these sort of furious uh, would-be cinematic pans and whips and zooms and close-ups of the little finger of the flautist and so on and so forth, usually when the, the timpani is playing. I mean, I think, that sort, of, <laughs> that, I think that, that sort of coverage on television is a complete abomination, and some of my best friends do it. Um, uh, but that when there is a soloist that, you know, I, I, I sit in the middle of the stalls in a rather good seat at the Barbican and when some of the best solos are being played and I happen to know most of the players in the LSO but I can't see them I think, you know, what is the point of having a really great piece of music being played by somebody deep in the orchestra and you can't see them I think it's an insult to the performer, number one and I find it impossible to see why it isn't a help to the audience if you couldn't see that soloist up on, the, up on the screen. And you might even see uh, how awful the conductors beat us from time to time <laughs> if you had that up on the other screen. But still, and then in the interval you could do all sorts of things, um, uh, present discussions about uh, either what people thought about the first half or what they were going to hear in the second half and so on and so forth. So I, I wrote that in that essay and um, various friends came up and said, you can't be serious. I said, well, I am quite. And they said, it's absolute death, and number two, we're not going to do it. And very close friends to me, uh, very, very close uh, friends said, if that's what you're going to do at the Barbican, count me out. Fact remains that sooner or later, it may not be sooner, people are going to do something like that, maybe in a slightly modified form. But what I am encouraged by is that things are changing, though not necessarily in that sort of way. I don't know if you've noticed, people are starting to use lighting during concerts. And there are two occasions recently at the Mark Turnage weekend, the BBC Symphony did, uh, I think, on the Saturday evening concert, forms of Your Rockabye. And every movement there was differently lit, not dramatically, but, but slightly. It was very effective. When we had a performance of the Britain Canticles with Bostridge, Daniels, and Christopher Maltman, each canticle was differently and quite dramatically differently lit. It looked smashing. I mean, also sort of lurid and stupid but it was appropriately lit. The performers liked it, the audience liked it, and it worked. Um, when there was an Elliot Carter program about two or three years ago, uh, the intervals between the various pieces, the screen was lowered, and there were extracts of a significant interview which Carter gave, and discussion between Carter and uh, Pierre Boulez, and, and, and things like that. None of these things are difficult. The question of the lighting is not even expensive. And so I'm encouraged by the fact that there is this sort of change coming in. And increasingly, when orchestras do semi-staged or quarter-staged performances of opera, yeah. they introduce lighting. Again, it's not expensive. Uh, I, mean, this is, I think one of the best performances of Act One of Tristan uh, was done about six weeks ago when the BBC Symphony did it, semi-staged with a little bit of lighting, absolutely stunning. They're doing Act Two tomorrow, if, uh, It is one of the best performances of Tristan you you will see. So, things are happening. It's a visual experience as well as an oral experience. You don't need to put people off by doing it.
1: Yes, absolutely. Um, I'm just pausing because um, I wanted to uh, just to take, well, to try and round things up a bit. And um, I was trying to frame a question about whether there are, there are not just these two alternatives, the, the abstract, uh, the kind of very straight presentation of music, and the kind of socially engineered um, you know, music for, um, I don't know, um, improving some statistics or other. Are we insufficiently good at telling stories, the things that music does, that are not kind of sinister social engineering? The, the collective involvement of children, for example... Who are not necessarily, you know, the leaders of the pack, the strongest, the most uh, fashion conscious, or whatever. The ways that music can bring people together that do not um, uh, that don't get recognised when people are practicing scales. I mean, I was, the reason I asked this, I was just doing a very short interview about our topic on Thursday for uh, a radio program, and you know, the interview was saying, well, you know, what's wrong? Why don't we take training seriously enough? And You know, I found myself in the invidious position of sort of telling parents uh, who are listening that their children, you know, should be told it's good for them to do all this. And, I mean, everybody knows that the the last thing your children want to do is what you tell them is good for them. But I just wondered if you thought that there were – we've talked a lot about marketing – whether there's a different kind of marketing that the arts don't do for the things that perhaps we take for granted, that – people can be brought together by arts or I mean even things that sound very sort of cheesy like transcending boundaries and things like that I mean is there a kind of benign engineering that we can offer in the arts that doesn't get talked about
2: well I'm I'm sure there is and I'm always struck by the fact that uh, every year and this is just one example of communal Binding together the number of arts festivals that there are just gets more and more. I mean it seems to be there are very, very, very few communities, hardly any building uh, where somebody doesn't say, you know, we've got a marvellous church here, we've got a marvellous hall, why do not we have uh, a, a, a festival? And it just just proliferates and, and proliferates. I think just going back to the question of you know, what young people have to be persuaded to do, what we always forget, and I think the politicians forget, is that there is a large chunk of excluded children who desperately want to play instruments and of course there are fewer instruments around and there are fewer peripatetic music uh, teachers and there is an unmet (coughs) and unrecognized demand and actually for for instruments and learning instruments and it's unrecognized because the politicians don't want to recognize it. I'll just give you one example of this and I bet it's not the only one. Uh, we had a music project with some of our the Barbican schools, our old schools on the inner uh, boroughs, very very close to us. And this was with Winter Marsalis and the Lincoln Centre Jazz Orchestra about two or three years ago. And there was some uh, one school in particular uh, and they worked up a jazz project of which the last bit of it meant they came into the Barbican for a whole day and they were coached by Marsalis and they played with Marsalis and they went into the concert. Absolutely stunning stuff. And you saw this group of about 20 uh, young people, 12, 13, 14, that sort of thing, up on the platform and they are playing a fairly assorted collection of instruments. And I asked why to so assorted. And the school said, well those are the instruments we have. Right. So the first two got the clarinets, and the next two got the flutes, and the others ended up playing, you know, the horns or, or whatever. Was that what they wanted to play? Not particularly. Did they want to play an instrument? Yes. Did they want to play an instrument so much that they'd play a horn even if it's their fourth choice? Absolutely did they benefit from it enormously and their parents were proud as hell and their teachers said, do you realize what the importance of this is? This is the first time in their lives that these young people have stood up on a platform and done anything for which they have then deserved and received recognition and praise. And so when the opportunity arose, all those children wanted to play an instrument, and I bet if you'd said to any local MP or anybody like that, look at these children, and they are not very well educated, and they do not come from very good homes, what chance is there that any one of them wants to play a French horn? And they said, don't be silly, give them a guitar. When the opportunity came, what they wanted to play, because they wanted to play, was a French horn. So I think that is, uh, uh, that is the, the, the scandal, that is this unrecognized demand because it is politic not to recognise it.
1: Yes, absolutely. I uh, so much agree. That's what I mean about this abrogation of cultural values, that um, only that which is perceived to be, uh, you know, vote-catching, can be advanced as uh, kind of worthwhile. I mean, to me, it's it's just as embarrassing as the kind of the Anglican vicar strumming guitars. I mean, it's at that level of, you know, of naivety, but I'm afraid it is... I mean, everything that music represents in terms of diversity and um, private expression and all those things seems to be at at variance with the values that our political class espouses, and Mm. and that can be very frustrating. But, I mean, your example is a wonderful one of the fact that self-esteem, or whatever we call it, is something... I mean, music reaches to all these things in a way that no amount of political strategies seem to be able yeah, to. And it's
2: not up to politicians to define where people find their self-esteem. Exactly. But an awful lot of them would probably be rather shocked at the thought that children from inner-city schools looked for self-esteem and found self-esteem by picking up a classical instrument.
1: Well, no politician would have ever scripted the Billy Elliot movie. Well, no, so, quite well, yes. Would anybody like to ask questions? Sir? i
0: I'm also to to the proms. My question is, at the proms, I noticed a much younger audience than uh, I do at the Why do you
2: think that is? It all depends which concerts you go to. I'm not sure that's altogether true. Yeah, um, it, it, it depends. Um, early music gets a different audience, um, tends to be a younger audience. Contemporary music gets a much younger audience. The more advanced we are, uh, the more cutting edge, uh, we are the more blurring the boundaries uh, or extending the boundaries of classical music into music and um, video, music and film, music and dance, the younger the, the, the audience is. In fact, as we've changed our programming, and this is in the theatre as well as in the concert hall, the audience has, the average age has become significantly younger. So I wouldn't accept that as a generalization. It depends very much on the programming. It also
1: underlines the fact that as one of my previous guests is fond of saying, all musical um, styles are minorities now. I mean, if you go into any record shop, yeah. there's a list of them, and there's classical right at the bottom, and there are all these <coughs> other ones, they're all minorities as well. Yeah. So in a way, there's an audience young, old, you know, tall, short, whatever, for every different kind yeah. of music, mm. and it seems. We've sort of fragmented, I think. Um, There is a roving microphone. The reason for this is that it helps the webcast viewers to hear your questions.
0: Um, I think you're unduly pessimistic about the classical audience, and an example has just been given that uh, there are more and more festivals all over the country. And the good thing about the festivals over the country is it's spreading out of London. Mm. And if you take a longer perspective say, uh, uh, well, it could be, say, just 100 years ago. Now, people in this country, outside of London, how many concerts have they ever heard? They didn't even hear the music. They just, some were round pianos in their home. Now, if you went throughout the country today, you will find people all over the place with a wonderful CD collection, and they sit down, and it's not live music, admittedly, but they're sitting down and they're really enjoying classical music. It's nourishing, giving them a spiritual nourishment, shall we say. And I think one could be much more aggressive about the popularity. I mean, I'm going to the garden tonight. I had to queue up this morning in a long queue to get a day ticket, because day tickets are more or less expensive. It's the, the place is going to be packed. And
1: so... Well, that was rather the point I was trying to make when I was saying that we have to make the point that, you know, events are not a failure just because there are less than 25,000 people there. There are some things that attract those kinds of audiences. But to me, I mean, the most stunning concert, you know, I've been to recently, was a quartet concert in this room where there were only about 70 people here a year ago. And, you know, it has nothing to do with how many people are there. This is what I'm getting towards. And I, I absolutely agree that the power of the art still reaches a lot of people and we have these wonderful tools for doing it, but I think in a way it's a kind of, it seems to be a kind of national vice that cannot speak its name, I mean for the reasons we've talked about, that there is, you know, there seems to be no vote you know, there are no votes in standing up and saying, you know, everybody, you know, people listen to the Beethoven symphonies or whatever. We're not led by this I mean, it, it comes down to things as simple as John's example about leaders going to the opera and, and saying, This is something that we value. This is part of what we perceive the nation to be. And I think that doesn't happen. I think there is interest. Um, I mean, I had a remarkable experience being taken out to Heathrow by a taxi driver who introduced me to a live CD of Mikhail Pletnyov playing at Carnegie Hall. And, uh, you know, he was just somebody getting on with his job for whom classical music was an intrinsic part. And there are loads of people doing that. And I think that's true. But I think that there are great obstacles for the people actually making this stuff, whether they write it like me or they get up and play it. I think that because of the kind of uh, the failure to celebrate this more, obviously, if I can put it like
2: that. Can I just say something which I, I think picks up from, from what you said? Um, uh, this is about the spread of venues in which music is, is played. <clears throat> it's impossible to have a discussion about concert halls and concert giving, uh, I find nowadays, without somebody saying, and of course, I want to experiment, well, we should experiment with new venues. Uh, And I think there are two two things happening here. As a result of this, architects and concert hall designers are being asked to produce buildings which are much more flexible, which probably don't even look like a traditional concert hall. And a traditional concert hall is very, very inflexible. There are a lot of things we, we put on the barbican where you fill the stalls and that's a 1,000. That's a good, a good audience, but the Wall is 2,000, so if you're standing on the platform, it looks half empty. It's not. It's a good audience of a 1,000. But you should have a configuration where, if you know you're going to sell a 1,000, a 1,000 is full. And uh, there are ways in which this can be done, and I think this is uh, slowly being done, as people demand this from architects and, and acoustic designers. And I think the other thing, as the Berlin Philharmonic example and, and Simon Rattle showed, that is that uh, music probably needs to be played in all sorts of wacky environments. I mean, Albert Hall, let's face it, is the ultimate wacky environment. Uh, I mean, it's great and inspired, it's crazy, but the a concert hall, is is absolutely crazy. But every year, for seventy-five concerts, five thousand people go go there every night. But <clears throat> I think that the thing, uh, really, that does trap us, and we are a bit trapped is the physical buildings that we have inherited. We have to make do with them, and there are all sorts of things that, that you can do. But this sense of saying, I want to find the alternative venue, uh, you know, where was the Almeida Theatre really happy when he went down to converted bus um, station at, at, at King's Cross? And everybody flocked there, you know, because the floor was concrete and the, wood was made, uh, the bars made out of rotten wood, etc. There is something there we are searching for an informality of atmosphere as, uh, while keeping the quality of the actual performance. And this is still very much unresolved business.
1: One last question from the gentleman at the back uh, who put his hand up earlier.
2: In, which being interpreted means I don't think I agree uh,
1: with your remarks about lighting. Uh, in a performance um, and one or two uh, thoughts uh, cross my mind I mean does this mean say that now, if one is teaching uh, students to compose, you would have an extra stave or two for <laughs> lighting effects I, I was is saying it all part of Scriabin did,
2: Scriabin did. Well, oh. indeed, Scrubby did, and after all, but, and the other people see it. But Scrabin was mad. Yeah. But he did. He did. Yeah. No. Uh, uh, after yeah. all, each uh, different keys triggered different colours, didn't they? So, the colour keyboard. Yes, but, the colour well, pictures. I was, I I was, was saying earlier. Yeah, Instruct yeah. me on that. But <laughs> then,
1: uh, does it? Are there analogies? If you go to the National Gallery, would each picture have some music attached to it? Uh, uh, where, where does one
2: stop in, yeah. in this? Uh, I don't think you need to stop anywhere frankly, because you don't know where to stop until somebody has tried it.
1: If you, for example, I mean, to change the analogy slightly, I mean, the thought of having some music kind of piped out as you stand looking at the Roque de Venus or something is ghastly, but if there was somebody playing, um, I don't know, unaccompanied Bach, It's not quite the right time, uh, but if you had somebody playing that, and then they stopped, but it was there as a kind of collision of two uh, art forms, that might be interesting, you know, I the mean...
0: Galleries art galleries really need musicians. They do, yes. So they it, picture,
2: they it, do. Exactly, and and if you consider that 30 years ago, what were galleries? They were uh, glass cases, lit terribly boringly, and now, if you go to the British, the New British Wing at the VNA, I mean that is so lit, dramatically lit, something too too much so, but I mean, the galleries have woken up the fact that great objects, great works of art, can be presented in a visual dramatic uh, designed way without taking anything away from them. By comparison with that, classical music has been a bit slow too to catch on. Really,
1: yes. I, mean, I think in a way we're too, ref- we're too reverential and at the same time um, it's the opposite, I mean I think we need to revere works of art in the, how we educate young people and so on. At the same time, if they're any good, we can do all kinds of outrageous things with them and see if they work. And if they don't work, the work of art is always there afterwards. You know, you never, you can't, you can't damage it, you can't break it.
2: Mm. And after all, what do you do when you sit at a concert? Lighting is already there. The lighting is turned down. So, but we never go beyond that and say, well, you've made that basic statement of thinking that the there should be a concentration of light uh, uh, over there. What else can you do with, with lighting? Yes. Uh, oh, no, no I, not at all. I want you to be encouraged.
1: Encouraged. <laughs> I, I just... I, I cut the lady off here, but there was a question. We'll finish with you. Um, Sorry, there's a microphone <laughs> winging its... Um, you mentioned the name of Tess and She um, seems to be rather a stranger
2: to culture. Um, <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> and her, her
2: predecessor
0: really did know what it was all about. And he's nowhere, and that seems
2: to, to be rather sad. I mean, I think our politicians who,
1: who know about arts and music, there's another one, Mark Fisher, that you mentioned, and, and he's nowhere
0: now, oh, well. which seems rather sad. And when you mentioned work as playtime, there was also something called SEMA, which yes, was the yes. count... And that put on opera for yes. civilian workers. And I was taken by my mother
1: to hear two operas in a local cinema. I think the tickets were one and six. Um,
2: but that doesn't happen anymore. Well, no, of course, life was very boring at the time. I mean, it really was. We can all remember what... I mean, even, even, even after the war, I mean, life was very boring. Sundays were, were torture. Uh, and so when, when, particularly during the war, people had things like SEMA, you know, providing music, there was nothing else to do. And uh, we all have very, very much more to do. That is also, I think, part, part of the, the problem.
1: And may I say thank you for the LSO Education Project, which is I'm just ha-
0: about to start in my borough.
2: Good, good.
1: Well, it's time to wind up, but uh, will you will join me in thanking John very, very much for making time to join us at Gresham today. Thank you very much.
0: For all information, please go to our website at www.gresham.ac.uk